Hello and welcome to the Law Down Under podcast with Barrister Chris Patterson, where we'll give you insights into the law in New Zealand and Australia, its application and the law's future. Each episode features a new guest who will inspire your interest in the law and give you a greater understanding of the legal issues that help shape our justice system here down under. We thank you for tuning in and enjoy the podcast. Kia and welcome to the Law Down Under podcast. Today in the studio I have with me Michelle Chen, who's a specialist immigration lawyer and the director of MC Legal based in Christchurch. Having grown up with migrant parents, Michelle is driven by her personal experiences to help individuals and businesses alike with their immigration-related matters. Michelle is bilingual. She has worked and studied in China and has travelled to countries such as Russia, Tajikistan, Vietnam, and in 2022, she started her own immigration practice, being MC Legal. She now works closely with businesses uh, in Christchurch and throughout New Zealand to ensure their ongoing immigration compliance and with individuals looking to call New Zealand home. Uh, Michelle, welcome. Thank you, Chris. Thank you for the introduction. Oh, Lovely to be here. It's great to have you on the podcast. I'm super excited about talking immigration law. But before we do, Tajikistan. Okay, am I pronouncing that right? Yes, yes, that's yeah, correct. Yeah, is. Tajikistan. Okay, uh, look, I'm showing my geographical ignorance here. I'm assuming it's a, a former Soviet bloc country. Um, where, where is it? Yes, that's right, um, Chris. Um, it's actually just under Kyrgyzstan. And Kyrgyzstan is right under Kazakhstan. Yeah. Yeah. These are these are the three stars. Yeah. Oh, there's a few other stars. Oh, there's, but, yeah. there's more stars. Okay. <laughs> those are the ones that I've been to, though. All right. <laughs> okay. So, well, look, um, I, I don't want this uh, podcast to be about Tajikistan, but um, I, I'm just slightly intrigued. Um, why would you go there? Um, it was part of an intrepid tour, actually, right before COVID. We booked it in and we didn't know anything about it. And actually, we booked it in um, as part of the original tour, which is included um, Kazakhstan. And the reason why we went to Kazakhstan was because of Borat. So, <laughs> Of course. Of course you went there because of Borat. Sasha Baron Cohen, he's going to get people to, to parts of the world that they they'd never expect. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And yeah. It was, Tajikistan was just a nice little um, country that we hadn't heard of um, at all from New Zealand. And we realised that 80% of the country is mountainous. Well, didn't know that. Okay, eighty percent of mountains. Mm. Okay, they must be very fit people. Very fit. Okay, it's it's at altitude as well. Yeah, high altitude. Yeah. Okay. Oh well, there you go. Um, and so, look, what was your your number one takeout of uh, of visiting Tajikistan? What, um, what did you enjoy the most? I enjoyed how it was very humbling when I went mm. there, um, mm. and I realised that there's some countries or regions in the world where, um, you know, like people try to get ahead and try to um, get out of their situation by upskilling and working hard. But unfortunately, I feel as if one of, one of the countries like Tajikistan, it will be very difficult for someone to be able to migrate from Tajikistan to New Zealand if they didn't have the um, financial background. There you go. So the meritocracy not working in terms of uh, immigration. And look, hey, great segue. Let's talk mm. immigration because that's what this podcast is about. But look, you know, let's uh, let's talk first of all about, uh, look, I, I'm going to start off at a really high level. You know, there's going to be some listeners here who are immigration specialists. So this isn't going to be news to them about what I'm about to ask. Mm, there's also going to be other people who, you know, will have a sense about immigration. They'll know that people you know, who come to New Zealand, they're not New Zealand citizens, uh, you know, they're wanting to make New Zealand home. Mm. They'll understand that to be immigration uh, and they'll understand that there are laws. Okay, but but let, let me ask the question, what what's the underlying purpose of our, our 
our immigration laws like where's where's the starting point of where we find it i assume it's the immigration act 2009 what what's what's the purpose of it um, it's to, I guess, monitor and regulate the control of people coming into New Zealand by balancing, like you mentioned earlier, national interest, um, what's good for New Zealand against what's, um, what people can bring into the country. And the individuals themselves. And the individuals themselves, yes. Okay. That's the overriding, um, I guess, purpose. Okay. And like, who, who determines what's good for the country who, uh, under the Act, you know, or under our laws? Like, who, who determines that? Well, I guess it will be whichever government's in power. Okay. So this, the state, you yeah, know, yeah, and, and the government that's, that's controlling the state at the time. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, we've just had an election. We, we might talk about what the future holds with if there is a coalition formed mm-hmm. national act um, and what that might look like. I've mm-hmm. spent a little bit of time having a look at their immigration policies, but let, let's talk about that towards the end okay. as to what the future might look. Let's just current, let's just stay in the present and say, okay, who are the participants in our immigration system? You've already mentioned, you know, the state, the government. You've mm-hmm. mentioned immigra- uh, individuals who are wanting to to, to immigrate to New Zealand. Mm-hmm. You know, are there any other participants in our immigration system? Um, one recently, I guess, with um, a recent company would be just like New Zealand Qualifications Authority, so NCQA, a different agency, um, and they regulate um, and assess which qualifications are exempt from assessment or which actually require further delving into to assess what level of um, skill or um, qualifications individuals come into the country with. Okay, so I guess we're talking about um, pathways and Mm -hmm. categories. So this is skilled migrant. Um, what, What other... Well, look, look, if if someone is 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 turning up at the border, or, or they're wanting to turn up at the border and 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 move to New Zealand, mm. what are the, the the pathways that they can uh, apply? Because you know they can't just literally turn up and say, "Hey, I'm here. New Zealand's now my home." Mm-hmm. Um. So so how do they go about the the process of 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 you know being able to live in New Zealand? I think the first point of call is actually going onto the Immigration New Zealand website. Yeah. Um. It is. Relatively easy to navigate if you understand it, but they try to set out what pathways or options are available. So some op- some so, so some countries um, such as like the UK or America, um, individuals that are wanting just to have a visit to New Zealand, travel around a bit, then come here on a New Zealand electronic travel authority, uh, which is something that you can apply about 72 hours before you come in to your flight. Um, so it's visa-free, um, visitor visa, three months, straightforward. But for others, such as um, those from China or India or South America, um, they will need a visitor visa so they can make an application. Um, that allows someone to come into the country and have a look around, explore, okay. travel. Yeah, all right. Well, to, to get the New Zealand experience, mm. to you know, we welcome them into our country. Oh, look, um, hey, uh, the whole... Um, you know, a large part of our economy, mm. um, of course, is based on tourism yes. and people coming and visiting New Zealand and spending a lot of money. Um, it's questionable um, how efficient that is. Mm. I mean, I'm not going to sing- single any particular country out, but, you know, we have some backpackers who will turn up from somewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, and they might not spend a lot of money in New Zealand, but they'll use a lot of our um you know, uh, let's say our facilities, we'll we'll take an area close to my heart. You know, for example, we've got 
great um, conservation lands. Mm. Um, and it costs a lot of money for the New Zealand taxpayer yep. to maintain, you know, just take our great walks, for example. Yes. You know, it's um, so we really want our visitors to come here and spend a lot of money because tourism is, is such a large part, but not every tourist is, is, is the same. Mm. So the, the visitor's visa, mm-hmm. you, you've said that some countries, they can just 72 hours, do it online, pretty much be granted a visa. Well, why are other people from other countries, why do they have to go through a, a more rigorous process? What, what's the reason for the disparity? I guess it will probably depend on um, like the country-to-country's agreements with each other. Yeah. Um, so whether or not um, they're high risk, if there's a sort of risk with where they're from. Um, and, yeah. How's, how's risk... Risk assessed. Uh, what basis is, is that? Like, why is someone from the UK less risky than, say, for example, someone from, I don't know, uh, again, I'm not trying to pick out countries, but I'll just say Iran. Okay. Um, well, I guess for, with the UK, it's English speaking for one. Mm. Um, some of their qualifications, um, like I mentioned earlier, NCQA. But that wouldn't matter for a, a visitor, would it? Like if they're just wanting to turn up and have a, you know, backpack around the South Island for 30 days, mm. well, why would that matter? Um, I guess it's something that uh, immigration assess or to see whether or not it's relatable, comparable, right? Mm. Different countries, um, you know, finance background, banking system, et cetera. Um, it's easier to verify I guess we've got uh, reciprocal arrangements with um, yeah. with certain countries, including the UK. Mm-hmm. Um, so we've got to, you know, look, um, if they're going to provide Kiwis with privileges into their country, we should probably do the same going mm-hmm. back the other way. That makes sense. Okay, well, let's talk about the more kind of, as we get towards more permanent residency and citizenship, mm-hmm. um, let's talk about working. Let's say someone wants to come to New Zealand they want to work here. What's mm. the what's involved in that? So there's different um, pathways we mentioned um, mm. on ways that they can get the working visa. So there's working holiday visas. So for example, the UK we mentioned earlier, they've got access to 24 months working holiday visa. Um, come here um, and it's an open working visa, so they can work for any employer um, in the country, and that and the employer doesn't actually need to be accredited. Um, so the other pathway would be an accredited employer work visa, which is where an individual um, obtains a job offer from an accredited employer um, and then they work with that particular employer for at least full time and in a specific position in a specific location. Okay, so if you've got an accredited employer and you're going through that type of work visa, Mm -hmm. that creates quite a, a closer, more dependent relationship between the employer and uh, and the, the overseas worker, um, as opposed to the more open work visa that you mentioned, where it seems to be more free. The the, the worker, overseas worker, can work for anyone. They can they can quit a job, go to another employer. There's no it doesn't seem to be any restrictions. So let's talk about this accredited employer. Um, do, does that create a, a bit more of a um, how would I describe this? Does it almost create a golden handcuffs type scenario? They're, they're locked into one employer? Yes, I guess that is, I suppose, the purpose of it. It's the reason why immigration brought out this policy was to be able to reduce migrant exploitation so they could actually monitor the the employer as opposed to the worker. But what it, what it does, in fact, is I've had 
workers come to me and say, I want to change employers, but they have to find someone that is also accredited and is offered the same role and the pay rates obviously comes into play. So, yeah, it does actually, I guess... Less is the workers less likely to leave that employer if they are holding that particular type of work visa? Okay, well, doesn't that create um, sort of an unintended perverse consequence where the, that worker is therefore a little bit more vulnerable because they're 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 more tied to that employer? Well, in terms of their their freedom of movement um, from employment. Mm-hmm. Um, couldn't that give a bit more power to an accredited employer to exploit the worker? Yeah, and you would have probably seen all the articles recently just before elections mm. about how, I guess, how prevalent migrant exploitation is with this particular system. Yeah, and look, there seems to be industries that are, um, let's just say, don't have the, the greatest track record in terms of looking after migrant workers. Mm-hmm. Um, don't like singling out. Um, industries, but I'm going to. <laughs> Construction seems to be one mm. where um, there are these, I guess, what would you call them, labour-only contract companies will go to countries like the Philippines, mm-hmm. will recruit a bunch of Philippine construction workers, mm-hmm. make great promises to them, get them over to New Zealand, um, and then uh, and, and then, I guess, engage in some forms of exploitation. Um, I mean, are, are you aware of that sort of behaviour taking place? Yes, I was. Um, I am aware of that behaviour. I was I was aware of that behaviour before the accredited employer work visa yeah. came out, actually, the policy. It's always been there, um, but it's just the, the degree of it. Okay. Um, well, what, sort of, what, what sort of, how do some of these um, uh, not so great, uh, let's just call them mm-hmm. poor, accredited employers or mm-hmm. just employers who have, have got migrant workers, what, what are the sort of areas of exploitation? How are workers exploited? Um, I'm not saying this is a roadmap for anyone out there to say, oh, this is what you can do, but look, because you shouldn't. I no, mean, it's, it's, outra- it's sort of outrageous, but, but what are the areas in which an employer can exploit a migrant worker? I guess the, probably the most common theme that's been coming into the headlines is migrants paying for their role. So, um, you know, we've there was an article recently with, with um, licensed immigration advisor that was paid between twenty thousand to forty thousand per position, and then um, per visa, essentially. Right. Okay. Well, I mean that sounds extraordinary. It's, I mean, okay. So, and now, does the law prohibit that? Is that is that an area that there, there's a prohibition around, or is it just something that uh, you know these these businesses can run? Well, there's actually there's there's an independent review um, that's starting to take place. We should get the findings probably before Christmas. Um, it's just a deep dive into the current policy and what um, checks can um, it's you know checks can be taken place to avoid or prevent employers from exploiting migrants. Um, one of the things that because the system at the moment is based on a high trust. Um, and it's a, essentially a checkbox check exercise for mm-hmm. employers to be accredited. Um, it's the problem is at the moment I see in the policy is that it's after the employer's been accredited, imp- immigration can come in with compliance um, or verification checks to see and monitor if there has been some sort of exploitation. So um, I think at the moment 
they can call, they can review, or they can do site visits, or even desk um, checks. About fifteen percent of employers are usually um, checked every year. Yep. So, and that's something that I understand immigration are looking into a bit more detail, um, as well as um, taking a deeper look into the accreditation applications and also the job checks. So, at the moment, they're taking. Um, a lot longer. Uh, the average time frame is about six weeks. Um, previously, they had said immigration had said that they aim to process it within ten working days. So, all the delays is obviously because of greater verifications from immigration. And, and I guess also at stake is New Zealand's wider reputation in the international community. I mean, mm. if we're not looking after uh, migrant workers and we're exploiting them. Mm then that can't be good for our, our reputation. Do you no. agree? Yeah, I absolutely agree with you there, Chris. Yeah. Um, it's the basis of our immigration system. It's on trust and the integrity of it. If if all else fails, then people are not wanting, not going to want to come to New Zealand. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'm going to talk about the number of people coming to New Zealand in a moment. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I do want to stick on this uh, or stay on this exploitation issue a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Um Migrant workers are going to be more vulnerable than than a a New Zealand citizen who's who's working here in their own country. Mm. Okay, um, presumably because you, you've got language issues. You, you'd agree? Yes. Yeah, and, and also they're, they're not going to have the, the you know the, this is getting into the realm of um, social science, but the the cultural capital like they're not going to understand um, uh, as well. As you know, what it is to 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 fit in culturally within New Zealand, because they'll have their own. They'll be coming in to New Zealand uh, with their own cultural background that may not necessarily um, uh, fit neatly into into our culture. Yeah. 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 So, and that puts them at a bit of a disadvantage, not understanding the the, the cultural aspects off the bat, uh, and also they're not going to have the, the the social capital. That is, they're just not going to have the networks. Like they're not going to have family and friend networks here that they would otherwise have from the country that they've emigrated from. Mm-hmm. And that puts them at a bit, a bit of a disadvantage. Yeah, no, I definitely yeah. agree with you there, Chris. Um, and I think that's one of the things that, as part of the accreditation policy, they put a big emphasis on settlement services mm. and actually saying to employers, hey, if you're going to recruit an overseas mm. worker, make sure you know, within one month of them arriving, they will need to be provided with these settlement services, say, um, where, is, where you can get free legal advice, for example. Like Citizen, community, community law centres and yeah. Citizens Advice, advice Bureau, yeah. um, how to set up an IRD account, bank account, um, and also like various community groups. I, I know that in, um, on Facebook I've had lots of clients um, reach out to me and say they've actually um, seen my name pop up and, you know, Brits and um, Americans in Christchurch, for example. And um, so there is, with technology, it's, mm. I guess, there's not as much of a barrier as there used to be. And migrants, they tend to be a bit tech savvy now, and they can actually reach in and join various sort of groups that they could actually ask others that have been through the same stages of the migration process for tips and guidance. Okay, so look, I, I mean, I assume I'll get you to confirm if you're aware, I assume that there are uh, migrant support groups probably based on nationality. Like, I, I mean, you know, is there, well, you may not know, but I'll just take South Africa, for example. If you're a if you're a family immigrating from South Africa and you just don't have those networks that I talked about before, mm. is, uh, are there 
South Africa, like a, a South African migrants network in New Zealand, is that a, is that a thing? Um, I actually spoke with um, a lovely lady at a conference on Saturday, a girls in business um, mm. conference, and she's from South Africa, mm. um, but she had migrated to New Zealand about thirty years now. But she mm. had said that yes, so they they tend to have um, or form groups, and I like I just keep repeating mm. Facebook, but Facebook yep. for one is great because. Um, it can't usually is regulated, um, but migrants from those particular nationalities can join um, and be part of that sort of community group in New Zealand. Um, yeah, is that, okay. yeah. All right. Well, let's um, let's talk about uh, another pathway, and mm-hmm. I, I think that's um, that's applying for residency. Mm-hmm. That's a, a thing. Yeah. How, how does someone become a, a New Zealand resident? Um, I guess the most common ones at the moment is through the green list. So tier one um, straight to residency. So if you are, um, say, there's different specialists of doctors on there. Um, There's uh, engineers, um, various subspecialties there. Um, If you've got a job offer from an accredited employer and you pay a certain wage um, and you meet all the other requirements, obviously, you can apply for residency straight away on a job offer. Um, there's tier two, which is the work to residence pathway. Um, so a lot of like say teachers or nurses or, um, recently I've been dealing with telecommunications technicians, um, working for an accredited employer for two years. Um, there's other requirements that they need to meet, but they can apply for residency. The other one, which is the more common one, um, is the skill migrant category, which has recently had a revamp. So, um, probably a lot of our listeners would know that there used to be like a 180 point system, but now it's changed to a six point system. Um, so that's two stages. Going from 180 to six sounds like quite a simplification or am I missing something? <laughs> no, it's definitely a simplification. It's a huge, re, just a huge change in the, the yeah. full policy. And it's really targeting, um, I guess, higher skilled individuals um, those that have, uh, you know, like at least a bachelor's or higher qualification, um, if they are a professional, say a registered uh, teacher, um, then it's some of that pathway could be um, one that's probably easier than, say, the green list. Where okay. You have, yeah. Okay. And then, uh, then the, I guess the last one, if I've got the last one right, I haven't, mm. if I've missed any, just please let me know, mm. is actually becoming a New Zealand citizen. Mm-hmm. How does someone who's not born in New Zealand become a New Zealand citizen? Um, They have to have held their residency for five years or more. So that's their first residency. So Mm. some, um, I guess some clients ask me if it's their permanent residency or their first residency. It's the first residency. Um, And they have to live in New Zealand for a certain period of time over that five-year period. Okay. And then they apply and uh, I assume, provided that there's nothing that disqualifies them, it's just a process, administrative process. And Mm. then I understand... Once uh, that's approved, they, they have a little ceremony. You know, they'll turn up at the the the, the, the town hall with the mayor, and they'll they'll say an oath. I've never been to one, but I hear that hear, hear that that's that's what happens. That, I yeah. I actually haven't been to one either, but I just yeah. spoke with someone. Um, I think a few months ago that they had attended one, and they um one of their friends obtained a little wee native um kofi. So oh, that nice. was a love, nice way to welcome them into the country, I thought, yeah. <laughs> after that whole process. Yeah, or, or permanently, you know, recognise their, them, them staying. Oh, look, yeah. that's great. Um, sort of jump back a little bit in time. I think this is under the the, 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 the previous national government, mm-hmm. under John Key. I seem to recall uh, uh, Peter Thiel, who um, was a 
large investor. You mentioned Facebook. He he invested pretty heavily in Facebook, but he, I think he also set up PayPal. Mm-hmm. So he's one of these uh, American tech multi-billionaires. Uh, I'm sure I read somewhere, this is going back maybe, I don't know, must have, must have been eight years ago, mm-hmm. I guess, that uh, he just simply obtained New Zealand citizenship by by some means. Um, doesn't really spend any time here, but he's got a passport, and apparently New Zealand passports are, are, are of value. Mm-hmm. Are you aware of that, or am I just or was that something that I've, I've misread? Um, I'm not aware of that particular um, mm. that particular situation, but you, you might be mentioning about the investor the investor categories. Where well, I guess that's probably how he got out. Yeah, yeah, there used to be the investor one and two, but now this is called it's called um, revamped, changed into the active investor plus. Okay. Category. Yeah. Right. So, so what's the difference with the the previous and and the active investor. What what were the, the 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 main differences between those? Yeah. So when I first started practicing, I think the investor um, two category was um, the value of one point five million dollars. Um, one point five million. Yeah. Jesus, that's less than the price of a house in Greyland. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. um, that's changed now. Um, that that increased to about three million. Okay. Um, and there was a two-stage process with the investor too, so that was expression of interest, so making sure that you've got um, everything ticked off and then um, immigration will assess your application and then invite you to apply. The investor one was, uh, I think, $10 million. Yeah. Yeah, so that's um, so those two categories have now been scrapped. Okay. Um, now it's called the active investor. Um, so this is more focused on, I think it's it's weighted, but up to f- about five, $15 million. Um for individuals to bring into the country um, if they are more actively involved in, say, um, some of the New Zealand entities, which um, New Zealand Trade and Enterprise provide a, 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 there's, you know, there's companies that they um, encourage investors to invest their money in, um, they might be able to just invest $5 million and that will be weighted to equivalent of 15 Okay, they, well... I mean, presumably this is a way of uh, increasing the amount of available capital in New Zealand mm-hmm. um, by bringing in money from overseas um, uh, other than um, uh, flooding our banking system um, uh, for people to take mortgages out. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, these investors, um, uh, they come into the country, they've got lots of money. Um, do the, are there any particular? Do they ha- do they have to put the money into into something, or can they just go and buy fifteen million dollars worth of rental properties in South Auckland? Yeah. So they the the purpose of this particular policy policy is to encourage investment into New Zealand entities. So, um, say the tech sector, they really require the funding um, for growth. Um, so the, that the startups and those. yeah, the startups. Yeah. Okay. So it's actually. Putting money into creating uh, jobs and uh, I, I guess net value for New Zealand businesses, mm. rather than saying, "Yeah, I've got fifteen million sitting mm. in a bank account um, uh, with one of the major banks here. Mm-hmm. I, I'm just going to earn interest on it. I'm mm-hmm. not going to let it be used for for, for anything." Mm. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Oh, look. Um, <laughs> I think uh, actually, when we get into talking about the future, I think National has a, has a has a policy on. On the, particularly the tech sector, mm. so come back to that a little bit later. All right, okay. Let's talk about the numbers. Um, <clears throat> so, got onto the uh, Stats New Zealand website, uh, and it was reporting back in June that uh, migrant um, uh, arrivals 
uh, year to date June, 195,000, up 219%. That's that's extraordinary that there are, you know, effectively, you know, more than the population of our fourth largest city turning up uh, at our border uh, in in a 12-month period. I mean, it just... To me, that's that's mind blowing. Um, uh, I see that stuff three weeks ago. Said that they think that StatsNZ have have underestimated that, um, and that actually, in terms of net migration, hundred and ten thousand. I mean, that's the population of Dunedin. Mm. Uh, it's smashed previous records. This is like decades of records. Uh, you know, there's a migration boom going on. Um, that must be good for immigration lawyers. Oh, absolutely. Okay. <laughs> my Christmas is, my Christmas workloads come early. <laughs> yeah, uh, there there must be if if there's someone out there listening thinking of a of a career, um, seems to be a lot of work for people helping migrants. If you're getting you know, hundred and ten thousand net, you know this is you know people coming in, less people going out. Mm. So you know. Nearly two hundred thousand people. Um, you know, great for um, I guess immigration lawyers. But you know, what does that do to the housing market? Where, where do these people? Where, where do they live? How are we housing them? I guess that's one of the biggest challenges that we've seen in the South Island, especially because that's where a lot of um, visitors go to uh, when they want to see New Zealand. Not not saying that North Island isn't <laughs> worthy of a visit, but for example, Tikapo, um, huge outcry for workers but there's no um, houses available for the workers to live in. Well, you're right. I mean, I think, I, think Queen, I think Queenstown's probably even yeah. more extreme. You know, Absolutely. you hear stories of um, migrants, mm. workers, you know, live, you know, sleeping in their cars um, mm. because it just literally is no accommodation for them. Or mm. they have to live very rural um, and, say, commute an hour and a half. Um, we were in the Otago Rail Trail recently and... Um, a lot of the workers from uh, the small town Amakau, they were commuting about an hour and a half to two hours just to get into work to Queenstown. Yeah, oh, look, it's incredible. It. Yeah, um, and uh, look, I guess also, you know, the, you could understand why um, a young New Zealand couple, you know, wanting to get into the housing market mm. um, and, you know, really busting their gut to get a deposit together um, and then competing with wealthy overseas migrants for a limited housing stock, why they might feel a little bit hard done by. Mm. Yeah. I mean, that's the policy. You know, the the government sets the policy and and away we go. You know, New Zealand businesses clearly need more people. Mm. Plus, we're also an underpopulated country. I mean, you'd agree with that. We've we've got a a large geographical, you know, relatively speaking, amount of... country, mm. lots of resources, and, you know, we've only got 5 million people here. I mean, you compare it to Holland, mm. um, 18 million people with the landmass of effectively Talpo North. Mm. Um, so can you see a change in policy anytime soon to, to, to limit? I mean, I guess Winston Peters would probably like to see that happening. I don't know. <laughs> I haven't checked his policy. But can you see any change in that in the future? Uh, with respect to to the number of migrants coming into New Zealand, um, I guess potentially more red tape, um, more focus on 
the high high value migration, um, so those that are more high skilled coming into the country. Um, but not the numbers overall. The numbers. No, I think this is probably after a few years of the country being closed as well and people wanting to come visit their family and friends in New Zealand. That's also probably adding to those numbers. But those numbers are based on people who are intending to stay in New Zealand for more than 12 months. So mm. We're not talking about someone just turning up, you know, the grandparents turning mm. up to visit the grandchildren for, for three weeks or a month. Mm. Yeah? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So, I mean... That, you know, visitors' numbers are way more than the, yeah, the 200,000 in that regard. Okay, someone's applied for a work visa or residency and it's been declined uh, and, of course, the application's to uh, Immigration New Zealand. Mm-hmm. Um, does Immigration New Zealand need to provide reasons for their decision? How does it, how does it work? Uh, for residency, yes, they have to outline uh, the concerns that they have of the application before they make a decline. Um, and then as part of the decline letter, they have to explain the reasons for it. Okay. Yeah, so right. absolutely, yeah. Right, so... Unless they're, for example, if they're based offshore and they um, are applying for a temporary visa, immigration don't have to, you know, give you an opportunity to respond to any concerns. Okay, all right. So uh, let's, yeah, let's talk about, I mean, there seems to be two outcomes there. If it's a temporary visa, mm-hmm. there's no reasons that need to be provided. Someone's applying from overseas, mm-hmm. um, uh, what rights does that type of individual have to to challenge uh, Immigration New Zealand's decision to decline, the clinicure decision? If any, are there any rights to, to challenge that? Not when they're based offshore, unfortunately. So immigration take a more face value um, approach for visit, like for, the, for, for example, the visitor visas filed offshore. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've been seeing a, a few of them being declined because, say, um, they don't meet the genuine reasons or, you know, they might not return back to their home country. That's one of the more common reasons for the decline. Yeah, but they don't have to give reasons. They can literally just say your application's declined. Oh, no. Sorry, take that back. Sorry, take that back. So, yeah, they do usually give reasons, but they don't have to give you an opportunity to respond. Oh, okay. So, yeah. so no, no, no right to respond, but they will give some some reasons. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, what's to stop someone, let's just say, you know, just take China, for example. Mm-hmm. Someone's in China. They want to apply for a temporary work visa. It's They get a letter saying, look, it's declined. We think that um, you, you may not leave the country country at the end of your visa. Mm-hmm. Well, couldn't that person instruct a lawyer in New Zealand and say, look, I, I want a High Court judge to to look at this on a judicial review? Yeah, no, I've never had anyone um, they've actually wanting to challenge it in the High Court if they're based offshore. Uh, the natural process usually, which is what I've been seeing recently, is if they've been declined a visa in their home country, um, they instruct someone in New Zealand, say, for example, me or another mm. immigration lawyer, and they um, the lawyer would review the application and say, is there um, any do- anything that's missing from that particular application? And the more likely um, approach would be to file a brand new application. All right, yeah, so just reapply. Address, reapply, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And try and fix up any shortfalls in it. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, that's the more, okay. I guess, um, more common approach yeah. that I found. Yeah. yeah. Okay, all right. Oh, well, that, yeah, that's interesting. So now let's just talk about um, residency because mm-hmm. they, they do have to provide an opportunity to respond. Mm-hmm. So is it a almost like a preliminary decision? Does New, does Immigration New Zealand send, this is our preliminary decision to decline your application for residency, but we want to give you so many days to provide um, any comments you've got before we finalise it. Is that how it works? 
Um, so the process is once they've, yeah, so once you've filed an application and it gets in front of a case officer, they review it. If there's any concerns they have, say, for example, a um, very common one would be if a client's facing charges in, yeah. um, in the criminal court, so mm. a drink drive, for example, um, they have to give that person a, an opportunity to respond with comments, um, usually about a week or two weeks. Yeah. Um, and then following that, they would under, undergo the right process, right? For example, if they're going to decline that particular application, provide reasons why and invite the client to or applicant to say comment any further about those particular concerns. Okay, all right. So, the so the the applicant uh, you know provides the the comments. Immigration New Zealand, let's just assume, goes no. We're just going to stick with our preliminary decision. Mm-hmm. Your, your application for residency has is declined. Mm-hmm. What rights does that person then have to challenge that decision, if any? So they can appeal to the Immigration and Protection Tribunal. Okay. Yes. Tell us tell us about the tribunal. Who's on it? How does it work? Um, so there's um, members, um, which is, I guess, equivalent to, I guess, judges. Um, yeah. So it's... Tribunal members. Tribunal members, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so they're not judges per se, but they make a decision. But but the, the chair is a district court judge though, yeah? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Who, who's the current chair? Do you know? Uh, I no. think tra- Martin Treadmill. Martin Treadmill. Okay, chairman, fantastic. Yeah. All right, okay. So, and, and it is an actual tribunal, three members, I just back, back in the day, there used to be a thing called the um, uh, Employment Tribunal, which was a bit of an oxymoron to the extent that it was actually only one person. There wasn't three people sitting there. It, like, is the um, Immigration and Protection Tribunal three people sitting on a particular decision, or is it just one person? Just, just one. Just one. Just one. I don't yeah. know why they're called tribunals. <laughs> okay. It just anyway, it doesn't matter. Small point. Okay, so so one person will. Um, here, the uh, I, what, what, what's it called? A challenge? Is it a challenge to the decision of Immigration New Zealand? An appeal against the decision. It's an appeal. Okay. Yeah, and it's most of the time it will be on the papers, so you don't actually get an in-person hearing. Mm. Okay, mm. so it's on, right. So you don't get to, to turn up. And is it, is it an appeal when you say on the papers? Mm-hmm. Is the tribunal um, uh, looking at it de novo, um, that is completely afresh, mm-hmm. um, and that is looking at all the evidence and all the submissions, or are they looking at what the Immigration New Zealand has decided and then seeing whether there's any errors in that? So it will depend on which appeal it is. So, for example, mm. if it's a humanitarian appeal, so against mm. deportation, they will look at what's been presented. So, um, you know, what the applicants or the appellants' ties to New Zealand, um, any grounds, for example, if they've got employment ties or financial ties or uh, children, family. All so these are these are hardship issues. Yeah, and then what would happen, say, if they were to be deported back to their home country? So what would they face there and have that as the balancing? You know, I know you don't do refugee law, but it kind of sounds a little bit like the same things I'd imagine someone who was trying to... Um, stop deportation because they're a refugee, they'd be saying, if I go back to my original country, mm-hmm. I'm going to be persecuted. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I guess it's the emphasis is more on the ties that ha- that appellant has to New Zealand. So okay. if they've been here for, say, 20 years, um, established businesses or created jobs or they've got a New Zealand partner and they've got New Zealand citizen children, those are sort of sort of the ties or some of the um, circumstances the, the um, tribunal member will look at when considering the appeal. Um, so 
In terms of um, the decision from the Immigration and Protection Tribunal, mm-hmm. is that the end of the line for someone if they get an adverse decision, or is or are they able to uh, appeal that to the to the High Court? So yes, so if it is an adverse decision, they should definitely seek legal advice pretty promptly, um, and then they have about, I think, 28 days or a month to appeal to the High Court. Uh, presumably the uh, Immigration New Zealand can also, you know, is also entitled to appeal decisions mm-hmm. if they're not happy with a with a decision of the of the tribunal, yeah? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, yeah. for example, if the, um, I haven't seen it in my experience, but if they, uh, it's in the favour of the appellant, so if my client were to receive a positive decision, um, in the tribunal, the immigration um, lawyers for immigration can appeal to yeah. the high court. Okay, um, I mean, presumably a lot of these cases are run on legal aid as well. I'd just kind of imagine, particularly in the the, the migrant working category. Um, no, it's actually mostly privately funded. It's privately um, funded. Yeah, yeah, apart from refugee matters, they um, are eligible for legal aid some, mm. in some circumstances, but most of the time. 99% of the time probably it's all privately funded. Yeah, okay. Well, look, let, let's now talk about um, uh, in terms of the, the, the future of, of where this is this this may be heading. Um, so let's look at uh, the National Party's website on their immigration policy. Erica Stanford's their spokesperson and, you know, if coalition governments formed between National mm. and ACT, presumably she'll end up being the new immigration minister. Um, one of the things that I noticed was that National doesn't support uh, any am- amnesty for up to 20,000 overstayers who are living in New Zealand illegally for more than 10 years. So I'm taking it from that um, the National have determined or believe that there's, there, there's more than 20,000 people who are overstaying in New Zealand and they've been overstaying for 10 years mm-hmm. Um, and they're not keen to allow these people to have an am- amnesty. Uh, we, how, how's that going to, to, to look for those people um, if National come into power? I guess that's quite, it's quite interesting because at the same time coming up to elections, Labour had said that they wanted to introduce an amnesty for those that had overstayed in New Zealand. Mm. So it's basically one side against the other. But the problem is... If they um, did support it, or did if they did support it, then what happens to all those migrants that have worked endlessly or worked so hard to be able to meet the policy and make sure they're not in breach and to re- keep their um, status regularised and um, go through that process and become residents and then subsequently citizens? Yes, this possibly is good news for immigration lawyers and consultants because it sounds to me that if that policy is given effect, mm. there's going to be a lot of deportation matters um, that presumably, or decisions that presumably could end up uh, in the uh, Immigration and Protection Tribunal. Yeah, so it's, it's quite interesting because I've been noticing a lot more um, deportation liability notices being issued for someone, say, um, with the 2021 residency, there's been nearly 210,000 resident visas being issued. Um, and if someone was, like I mentioned earlier, about the tra- traffic offence, if they were to face a drink drive and they get convicted, um, there's a lot more um, deportation liability questionnaires and notices being issued to those particular resident visa holders. And mm. um, there's just definitely been an increase in that sort of action, whereas previously, five years ago or more, 
would have taken a lot longer for those um, compliance um, actions to, to take place. I guess it does sound somewhat harsh that if you've got someone who's been living and working in New Zealand for um, t- you know ten years or more, mm. um, that they you know they could be facing being deported. But I mean, if we compare it to you know Australia's five hundred one policy, and I'm not mm. suggesting you're an expert on it, but it does seem to be um, that our closest neighbours take a, a very more um, harsh view of uh, anyone in their, in what they'll say, in their country mm. who, um, uh, and it doesn't matter how long they've been there, they've been there since I was six months old, mm. um, if they're not going to comply with the laws, they're pretty quick off the mark to to, to send them back to, to to wherever they say they've come from, in, in our case, New Zealand. Mm. The interest is to see how, um, I guess, national um, takes, t- if, if they've taken such a hard stance, to see if that's equals to more compliance um, issues being taken place, yeah. Yeah, I, look, I don't know if you picked up in the media there. <laughs> um, I can't remember where it was. Maybe it was about a year ago. Um, uh, there was a a woman who was picked up in Syria. She was one of these ISIS brides. Oh, yes. And uh, uh, was uh, about to be deported out of Syria to Australia where she'd spent you know, all of her life, mm. um, uh, the Australian uh, immigration had worked out that she was actually born in New Zealand. They cancelled her Australian C- citizenship, citizenship, just cancelled it outright. Mm. A- and then she was sort of left in a c- scenario where, well, okay, well, she's born in New Zealand, so she, she'll return to New Zealand, which she did, mm. I understand, with a child. Mm. Um, is, is there a power to cancel citizenship under our immigration laws? Um I know. It's yeah. just you have to start have to re- reopen yeah. that file, start looking at the process. Was it obtained by fraud? Was yeah. it yeah? Seems quite extreme. Yeah, cancelling someone's citizenship. Anyway, hey, look, uh, another policy area <laughs> the nationals keen on is introducing a parent visa boost. Uh, um, that sounds like a, a a good idea. What's your your thoughts on that? I guess it's really to. Um, what I've read of the, their policy is that they really want to encourage high-skilled um, individuals to come here and then having a pathway for their parents to be able to be supported and come into the country. Yeah, although, um, I mean, this is uh, somewhat of a, um, I guess, an area that might uh, attract a lot of criticism. You, know, you have, um, let's say, a, a couple immigrate to New Zealand mm. and they get residency. Mm-hmm. And they decide, oh look, we're going to bring mum or dad in, mm-hmm. okay? Who who are obviously a little bit older. That's mm. generally how these things work. Yes. And um, the experts will say that um, something like eighty percent of your health spend, mm. okay, that is spent on your health, is in the last two years of your life. Mm-hmm. I mean, we've already got a health system that's in crisis. Mm. Do we really want? You know, um, uh, a bunch of you know uh, elderly parents from overseas turning up who uh, may end up, uh, at, well, inevitably, if if the research is correct, um, acting as a significant drain on a system that's already under pressure. Yeah, that's a very interesting point, Chris. Because I think back in twenty, must have been twenty sixteen, um, they actually closed that category, the parent. Um, category, parent mm. resident category, um, because of I guess how much um, 
public outcry about the drainage on the health system. Um, I think I had, I mean, I don't want to, yeah, I, mean, I won't say any comments on the podcast, but they no, paused it. No, please do. No. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> they, they, Go on. <laughs> they paused it for um, five years, mm. actually, just yeah. to stop that, just to stop the drain, I guess, because a lot of migrants that I, I remember helping, they immediately, once they um, were eligible, they were supporting their parents to come into New Zealand. Um, and after they, after the parent obtained residency, um, you know, they're usually a lot, a lot older. And then, yeah, if they needed to go to the hospital, and at the moment there's huge issues with, obviously, you know, um, with the health system all across New Zealand. Yeah, now look, another area which, and, and look, I'm not trying to beat up migrants here. Mm. Don't get me wrong, look. I've I've been involved in raising a couple of teenagers, and the old adage applies that it takes a village to raise a child. Mm. Um, getting help from grandparents, totally get that, understand all that. Um, but I'll just sort of move to a, another example where some people might think, you know, the the, the policy or the, the regulations are somewhat unfair um, in terms of if you think about, you know, uh, equity um, for you know those that have contri- that contributed mm. to paying taxes. Mm. Is let, let's uh, and again, I'm not trying to. I'm also not trying to beat up our, our gold card carrying members of our community, but but let's say that we've got Fran, and and Fran's 68 and is in receipt of uh, the New Zealand pension. Okay, mm-hmm. and, and Fran meets um, uh, you know a, a lovely man from Switzerland on the internet who's 75, and suggests to this we'll call him Hans. Um, Hans, why, why don't you come and move in with me and here in New Zealand? Come over and um, uh, you know be my partner. So Hans comes over and they form a relationship. Mm-hmm. Well, um, not only is Fran um, able to receive the single pension, but at some point when her relationship has um, matured, <laughs> excuse the pun, um, with Hans, she gets paid a bit more because she's got a dependent. Um, that just seems an odd thing to do that um, uh, the taxpayers would be paying for Fran's boyfriend um, or paying Fran more money because she's got a boyfriend that she's imported in from from Switzerland. I've been quite neutral on the countries here. I could have used other (laughs) sort of stereotypes of bringing in partners from overseas. But that just... Seems odd. Anyway, look, we're talking about law, not 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 the intricacies of uh, of policy around <laughs> superannuation. Um, let's uh, talk about another policy mm. <laughs> that might affect immigration, boosting the tech sector. We talked about that a little bit more before. Um, uh, sounds like National really want to push the tech sector along and, and get some skilled workers in. Um, both in terms of you know graduates who have got relevant qualifications because we can't educate New Zealanders to have those qualifications, and also those that are going to invest money in the uh, the tech sector, and then they have this thing called a digital nomad. I mean, I regard myself as a digital nomad, but I, I but I'm not really in the tech sector. Where do you think that that's going to going to push migration numbers? Um, I think the the last one that you mentioned, the digital nomad. Um, Visa, that's very interesting because there's been, I think I just recently read it this morning, um, about just over 50 um, countries around the world offering the digital nomad visas for those that can work remotely um, just to encourage more tourism and more activity into their home country. So, for example, um, say me as an example, 
I work completely remotely. Uh, I travel all across New Zealand and tomorrow I'm heading over to Vancouver mm. um, and I'm able to run my business completely remote from there. And I guess while you're in Vancouver, you're going to be spending money in Vancouver. It's all going to help the Canadian economy. Uh, every every little um, uh, a Canadian dollar helps. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I mean, uh, uh, I went back to, if I go back to the point about the overseas backpacker who spends mm. very little in New Zealand, presumably um, National have done some sort of research and worked out that these digital nomads uh, will come to New Zealand in droves uh, they'll work here, um, uh, they'll earn, you know, maybe US dollars, but they'll spend it here in New Zealand, um, uh, whether that's on pizzas from Pizza Hut or or otherwise. Yeah, it's a very interesting one, um, especially after, the, I think, after COVID. Uh, there were very few countries that offered this as an option, but now because of the numbers, I think it went from like about 21 in 2021 to about 58 countries now, um, is that... Each country is different, and it'll be interesting to see how national, um, if they do put out this policy, what sort of requirements there would be. But usually there is um, an income um, requirement, so say that particular applicant needs to earn a certain amount of money per month, per week, per per year, uh, whether it be their own business or they receive an income from overseas business. Um, yeah, and they meet all the other se- other requirements then. I think it will definitely boost um, the spending and um, help New Zealand businesses. Yeah, um, certainly possibly even start filling some of the skills gaps that, uh, that apparently we have. Yeah. Uh, moving to ACT. Um, well, uh, ACT wants to cut the red tape, um, and but they do want all major immigration policy decisions to be subject to regulatory impact analysis. That sounds very technical to make the benefits of a policy outweigh the costs. Uh, well, I guess I take from that that they want to be more selective about who's coming into New Zealand and that there is some sort of um, cost-benefit analysis for that process. Is that, that sort of how you're taking X policy on that? Yeah, it seems like um, based on what I've heard from um, the party is that they really want to encourage sort of high-skilled and high-network individuals to come into the country. So I guess that's that's the way that they've set out a sort of a way to measure that. Mm. And they're also mm. wanting to remove confusion and fairness uh, about applications. Uh, look, that's I mean, pretty that, subjective, isn't yeah, it? Well, well, it is. And, yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, let, let, let's see what the next few weeks or months or at some stage when these people who have been elected actually get around to governing, um, uh, doing what they've been elected to do, yeah. um, and see how that how that plays out. Um, look, Michelle Chen, thank you very much for for joining us on the Lord Down Under um, podcast. It's been a fascinating uh, look into into immigration in New Zealand. It sounds like you and your colleagues are, are, are pretty busy and will continue to be so if uh, immigration numbers keep hitting record highs. Um, I really appreciate you being on. It's been a great dive. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Chris. Cheers. Thank you for tuning in and listening to this episode of the Law Down Under podcast. You're welcome to join in on the discussion via my podcast page, which you can access at patterson.co.nz. That's p-a-t-t-e-r-s-o-n dot c-o dot n-z. Thanks for supporting the podcast and tune in again for more on the law, its application and the future of the law here down under.